0: Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of John. Turn to the book of John. We're going to look at chapters 13 and 21 this morning. Of all the people who were around Jesus in that last week before his crucifixion and then in the weeks following his resurrection, of all the people that walked with him and saw him, over 500 saw him alive of all the ones that were close to him and all the ones that were just starting to get close to him, all the ones that were just watching what was going on, I don't think there is anybody who was impacted more personally than Peter. Peter is a fascinating study. And he's a fascinating person in Scripture. And I can't imagine that there's anyone who felt the sorrow of the cross more deeply. Who, as he stood there watching, felt that anguish and that pain. Maybe Mary, but, but very close behind was Peter. And I can't imagine there's anybody that felt the joy of the empty tomb more than this disciple. Overwhelmed, so grateful, so happy that the Lord had defeated sin and defeated death forever. No one more passionate and more fervent in his commitment. No one more quick to react to the point of being impulsive and, and making mistakes, but he was eager. He was ready to go. He always was, was wanting to respond. So convicted, so convinced about the truth of Jesus Christ. He, he, he was not a person who doubted. When Jesus said, who do people say that I am? He said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. There was no hesitation. We don't see anybody else standing up for Jesus the way that Peter did. But he had imperfections. He made a lot of mistakes. He was too quick to react, too quick with ideas that weren't holy, too quick to jump at the chance to do something, maybe for slightly wrong motives, just, just always kind of on the edge. And I, and I think that's why the Lord draws us to him so much and why the Lord shows us his life out there in the open. And I believe it's one of the reasons that Jesus selected him to be the foundation for the formation of the church. Why why Jesus said, on on you, Peter, on this rock, you're the one that I'm going to build the church. The title of this study this morning is How the Lord Uses What is Imperfect. And I chose that title because even as redeemed, even as those who have been saved and delivered from our sin, that's all God's got to work with. God works with imperfection. As believers, we've been declared holy. We've been positionally sanctified. God has said, you're mine. I I have saved you. I have declared you to be righteous. You are now pure and holy in my sight. I don't remember your sins anymore. You are my child. You are a a co-heir with Christ of my inheritance. Everything God does points to the future and says, you are perfect in my sight. But while you're waiting for Jesus to come back, or while you're waiting to come home to heaven, you still struggle with sin. How many still struggle with sin this morning? Don't raise your hands, but you did. That's really helpful. We still struggle with sin, don't we? It's it's still an issue. I, I am not perfect. Believe me, ask my family. Ask my friends. Ask my church. Ask anybody. I'm not perfect. Far from it. And God declares us perfect. He sees us as perfect, and yet we're not yet perfect because we won't be fully perfect until we get to heaven. So we still have this struggle of sin. And the Lord has paid the price. He's had the penalty put on him. We're forgiven, praise his name, that he's done that for us. And yet, I don't know about you, but I still offend the Lord on a regular basis. And I still offend his righteousness. Maturing in our walk means that we're aggressively putting off the old man, that that we're very intentional, very purposeful, very, very strong about not wanting to walk as we used to walk, about denying ourselves daily and taking up our cross and taking that escape from temptation that 1 Corinthians 10 talks about, that the Spirit always provides. No temptation is given to you that you can't escape. So, maturing in Christ is about walking in righteousness. It's about being intentional, about saying, I don't want to live like I used to live. And and not only do I not want to do it, I'm not going to do it. Because we're not robots. God's given us a choice. God has told us, you can choose to walk in sin or you can choose to walk in holiness. I've given you absolute capacity to walk in holiness. So, walk in holiness. Now, that seems sometimes like an overwhelming assignment. Like we just, it's just too much. But when we look at Peter, who's so much like us, and yet he becomes this bastion of unshakable faith and of complete obedience and confident obedience against an enemy that wants to defile, against a culture that is opposing, against the influence of sin, and yet Peter, as of, The resurrection becomes lock focused on the commission that God had given to them. To go into the world, to represent him, to tell about his grace and his gospel, to be an example of the believers, to be someone that is strong in their faith, to tell people about the good news, to be holy as he is holy. These were all things that Peter did not have set in stone before the cross, and yet, when we look at his life after the cross, we see that this is not only something that is attainable, we see that it is God's reasonable expectation, as Romans twelve two talks about. This is God's reasonable expectation of how we're supposed to live as a believer. We talk a lot about process and about the journey and about becoming more holy, but God says, I've made you holy, walk in it now. Don't keep saying, well... Down the road, or someday, or you got to be patient with me. Yes, God's incredibly patient. How many know that's true? But God also says, I haven't given you partial so you can get there eventually. I've given it to you now. Do it now. And so many times I think we say, well, that's why I like Peter. Because Peter was on shaky ground. The disciples were on shaky ground. None of them were confident. None of them were walking. None of them understood the way they should have understood. And just hours before Jesus is arrested, Peter and the others are far from unshakable. They're far from obedient. In fact, during chapters 13 to 17 of John, which detail in those five chapters just the last few hours surrounding the Last Supper and his arrest, they clearly aren't grasping the words he's saying to them. In chapter 13, verses 21 all the way down to 33, Jesus is talking about his betrayal. He's saying, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to to be crucified. And this is an act of love for you. And that leads him into the first passage we're going to look at this morning where he says there's a new commandment. I'm going to tell you something you haven't understood clearly before. Look at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I've loved you, that you also love one another. By this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, because he's always the one to speak up, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, Where I go, you can't follow me now, but you'll follow me later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you right now? I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly. Truly I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Now, the command is simple. Love me the way I love you. What a daunting assignment that is. Love me the way I love you. And then love one another the way I love you. Now, that's not optional, That's not, well, if you feel like it, and if you get along with people, and if they're nice to you, love them. He says, love them like I love you. Jesus died for us, what is it, while we were yet sinners, right? We weren't exactly friends. We weren't saying, Lord, I love you. And Jesus said, great, I'll die for you now. We were opposed to him. We were his enemies. And he said, I'm still going to die for you. So he says, now love one another in exactly the same way. And just in case we're not getting it, he says, by the way, this will be the verification that you're actually my disciples. You can't say you're my disciples if you don't love each other. Now, the practical implications of this are unmistakable, that our lives must be marked. Listen now. Our lives must be marked by a lack of selfishness. Our lives must be marked by an attitude of complete sacrifice. Our lives must be marked by a priority on humble, relational restoration and unity versus judgment and damage. Because that's the definition of love. If we're supposed to love him and and love others the way he's loved us, well, what has he done? He laid aside his rights, Philippians 2 says. And he went to the cross, which was the ultimate sacrifice. He says, greater love is no man than this, and he lays down his life for his friends and then he restored us to relational unity with God that we didn't deserve because of sin, but he said, I'm going to pay your sin, I'm going to pay the penalty, and I'm going to restore you to me. So if we're supposed to love each other the same way, then we're supposed to be marked by selflessness, sacrifice, and restoration. Now imagine if we actually did that. What would our relationships be like? What would our marriages be like? What would our relationship be like with our kids? What would our churches be like? What would our churches be like with each other? What would our witness be like at work tomorrow when we're around people that hate the Lord? To love that way. Now, Jesus says, based on his words now, that that should be what's normal. Not, wow, look at that believer. They love people. I've never understood love like that. No, that should be the norm for every one of us. That should be the expectation. And as much as we want to believe that we do this well, Peter's the perfect example of how often we don't do it. And it's a call to love the Lord in a renewed, demonstrative way. And remember that theme of love because Jesus is going to come back to it. But look for context back at the text we just read, chapter 13. The author of the gospel is John. And John will always subtly refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. We don't know why it had to be true, because the Spirit wouldn't put it in there if it's not true. So there was some kind of bond, something where Jesus really had a deep love for John because he was faithful or whatever the case may be. But we also know that probably nobody loved Jesus more outside of his mother. Nobody loved Jesus more than Peter. He seemed to have the greatest practical trust because he's always the one who's eager, isn't he? He's always the one who's willing to do exactly what Jesus said. That's proven by the fact that he's always the first to be excited. He, he's just, he's, so, he, he's, like, he's like so happy. He understands the spiritual implications of, of what's going on. He's the first to obey. He's the first to jump out of the boat. He's the first to say, let's build temples at the transfiguration. He, he's, the, he's the first to defend verbally and physically. He was the only one we can understand from Scripture who actually followed Jesus after he was arrested. He was one of the first ones at the empty tomb. When Jesus appears in the passage, we we'll read in a minute, on the Sea of Galilee after the resurrection, Peter's the first one in the water. He's the first one to say, hey, that's Jesus. And he, and he doesn't even think about the fish. He just dives in the, in the water, starts to swim toward shore. But that was a sight. Peter was always the one. When the Spirit comes in Acts 2 at Pentecost and they're filled with power and they're filled with strength and filled with courage, it's not Thomas who gets up and preaches. It's not Bartholomew. It's Peter. And he gives one of the greatest sermons in recorded history in Acts chapter 2. We focus a lot on on Peter's impulsiveness and his betrayal and his failure. We'll do that again in a second, but, but only for context. What I want to establish this morning is there's no question that Peter was a loyal, faithful disciple who was convinced that Jesus was Savior and Lord. Passionate about his belief, firm in his conviction. He's a powerful figure. He deserves our respect and our admiration, which is what makes his betrayal so devastating to him and to the Lord. And it gives us perspective because if Peter, who loved the Lord so much and was so passionate and eager to serve him, If Peter could be pressured to turn on the Lord for a moment, then how much more do we need to be on guard to stand firm? Why does the Bible tell us so many times in the New Testament, hey, believers, stand firm now. Persevere. Come on, don't back down. The days are coming. It's going to get difficult. People are going to have itching ears. People are going to curse God. They're going to threaten you. Stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. That that message keeps getting repeated and repeated. And that's why what the Spirit teaches us here about Peter is so valuable. It teaches us some important spiritual principles, and then Jesus backs them up in the next passage. But till we turn there, in just a moment, look at verse 36. Because Jesus is saying, there's this new commandment. And the person who loves him most, and is most outspoken, is more than a little frustrated about the fact that Jesus is leaving. He's very sincere, I believe, in his desire to stay with the Lord. His reaction shows his love for Christ. He says, where are you going? Why are you going? I I don't want you to leave. I don't think he's arrogant or defiant or rebellious at this point. I think the moment's very heavy. And he senses it. He's an emotional guy. And he senses that something is going on. The other disciples may not fully get it. But Jesus is talking about serious things. And he's talking about being betrayed and leaving, which was unthinkable on both counts. And then Judas takes off for some reason. There's some kind of mysterious thing going on. And he departs and they kind of don't know. Maybe he's going to take care of some financial thing. They haven't listened when Jesus said, I'm going to dip the bread and hand it to the person who betrays me. And then he dips it and hands it to Judas. But the disciples are like, who is it? Who is it? And Peter, in this moment, he does, I don't, we don't know if he understands that Jesus is going back to heaven or he's just going away. But we know that he knows that he's leaving. And he says, I want to stay with you. And, and I'll sacrifice my life to be with you. I I would lay down my heart. You can see his heart breaking in the text. This This is not a metaphor. He's saying, I can't stand it. You're about to leave. And Christ says, I have another assignment for you. And the assignment is very, very simple. I want you to love. Peter still can't quite get past it. Jesus says something to him that, that had to make Peter, I don't know, there's so many adjectives here we could use. I think it makes him feel misunderstood and frustrated and angry. because Jesus says, Peter, before morning, before the dawn breaks, before the rooster cries out, you're going to deny me three times publicly. The text doesn't say here any response by Peter, but the passages in Mark and Matthew that, that parallel this have him protesting. And even the disciples get in the act, and they say, well, well if we have to die, we won't deny you. Uh, they're, they're well-intentioned. I don't have any doubt about it, but they have no idea what's ahead. They can't fathom what the next few days are going to hold and how difficult it will be to have the shock of seeing Jesus be betrayed and arrested and the pressure and threat on their own lives and then the stunning sadness of the cross. Uncharted territory, no, no place they had ever been before. All they had ever seen was strength. But in all of this, in all of that stress, the only person we really see highlighted is Peter. And he's not only highlighted by the text, by the writer, but he's highlighted by Jesus. Everyone had said they would be faithful. Look at it. But there's something about Peter's fervency that causes Jesus to talk about him. He says in the Luke passage, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Satan wants you. He wants to test you. He wants to, to, to penetrate your defenses and try to tear you down, Peter. This is going to be the test of your commitment and your faithfulness to me, and you're going to be personally on the line to take a stand. He knew it would be a test like Peter had never faced before, and he actually says to Peter, I'm praying for you. Imagine the Son of God saying, I'm praying for you. Not like we say to each other, oh, I'll pray for you. Hopefully I'll remember. Now fast forward a couple pages. Go over to chapter 21, where John narrates the days after Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus had appeared to the disciples several times in the upper room to prove he was alive. And then we have this meeting that takes place on the beach in Galilee where for some reason the disciples have gone fishing. Jesus appears on the shore and we have the miracle where he tells them where to find the fish because they hadn't caught any all night. And then they pull in all the fish and Peter says, hey, it's Jesus. He's here. And he dives in the water and and they all come to the beach to have breakfast. And at that point, The focus goes back to Peter. We've come full circle from the denials and the betrayal and the fulfillment of Jesus' predictions. Now we come back, and the conversation is again again about Peter. And I have to believe that, that this felt awkward. We don't know what had happened in the two previous meetings. We do know that Peter was a stand-up guy. He probably wasn't cowering in the corner going, I hope Jesus doesn't notice me because I denied him. Clearly, he wants to be close to him. Clearly, he's not shy about getting near Jesus. But even if he was okay with it, now, when Jesus now turns and looks at him as they're eating fish and bread by the shore where the boats parked, And Jesus now turns and looks at Peter and says, Peter, let me ask you a couple questions. And in that moment, all of a sudden, everybody kind of stops eating. You ever have those moments at dinner like, "Uh uh-oh, this is not going to go well? Usually happens maybe Thanksgiving. Somebody starts talking about politics or something. It's like, okay, I'm just going to act like I'm eating stuffing, but I'm really listening now. You can kind of feel the tension in the air. And Jesus looks at him, look at verse 15, and says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, we don't get that there's any delay here. This is right after each other. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. With each time that Jesus asks if Peter loves him, not coincidentally, three times to match the three betrayals. With each time he asks, the pain of his failure gets more and more intense. And that's personified and and highlighted by the fact that the first time Jesus asked him, he says, do you love me more than these guys? Because apparently that was part of the problem when Peter was like, I'll die with you. I'll be the first. I'll stand. We don't know how much bluster there was in that. But apparently there was a little bit of it because Jesus looks at him directly and says, "Uh, you you said you were going to die for me. You said you love me, and the implication, Peter, was that you love me more than everybody else. So let me ask you, do you love me more than these guys? Do you really love me that way? And the third time Jesus asks, it says in the text that Peter was grieved. The word means sad, uneasy, and almost offended. But the Lord's intent seems to be allow Peter to be uncomfortable. Now, why? Let's draw a couple spiritual Principles out of this and say good morning. The purpose of Jesus' rep- repetition leads to the first spiritual principle. And the first spiritual principle is very basic but very important. Personal humbling is crucial to make us effective for the Lord. Church, let's not forget that we have been through humbling times, we've seen the Lord use us, we've met in a hotel for two and a half years. I mean, this hasn't been a bad place to me, but we have not had the stability that we all crave. Now the Lord's leading us. Now let's not say, okay, we're fine. We don't need to do any more. We don't need to stretch. We don't need to have faith. Now we're settled. We can breathe. Yes, we can breathe, but the Lord's got a new assignment now. And personal humbling is crucial for us to be effective for Him. If our goal is to love the Lord with all that we have, then we cannot love ourselves more than we love him. Because we have to love him with everything. And that means self has to be crucified. The only way self keeps getting crucified is for the Lord to keep humbling us. So as hard it is to pray, and as much as we know that God loves to answer this prayer, we have to keep saying, Lord, humble me. How many know that God answers that prayer? You want to see prayers answered? Just pray that every day. God will take care of it. He'll show you that prayer works. Lord, humble me. Now, what does that mean? Two thoughts. First thought is we have to be increasingly aware of and content with the fact of our own inadequacy. You and I have to be aware of, and not just, oh, yeah, that's true, we have to be content with our own inadequacy. Every temptation of the devil and every appeal of our culture screams for us to be strong and self-sufficient. And there's merit to that until it excludes the Lord. God has given us the power and the might and has made us overcomers. So as believers, we're not supposed to be weak and timid and insecure and fearful and fragile. But when we ignore who is the source of our strength, that's when we get in trouble. We just sang a whole bunch of songs about how God is able, and God is strong, and God is almighty, and those are wonderful. I I had to catch myself as we were singing, Paul, think about what you're saying here. This is not just some song that gets to the next song that gets to when you talk. This is your worship to the Lord. Think about what that song is saying. Do you believe it? God is able. Yes, he is able. How many times has he proven that to us? But he alone is the source of our strength. And lest we applaud ourselves and indulge ourselves in pride and say, boy, isn't it wonderful? Even as believers, God says, "Uh uh-uh, I'm going to humble you. That's why James says, don't despise trials. Don't despise them. They are to give you perspective and they are to make you complete. They make us complete by teaching us to suppress self and exalt the Lord. So the first step is to recognize and and have contentment with our inadequacy. The second step that Peter learned is that we have to be increasingly aware of and overwhelmingly grateful for the Lord's complete sufficiency. We have to be increasingly aware of and overwhelmingly grateful for the Lord's complete sufficiency. Even in the hours before the cross and even in the days before the, uh, before the resurrection, the disciples still didn't understand that. They're, they're fearful and powerless and dejected and, and discouraged and depressed and unbelieving. But what happened when they saw him alive? What happened when he appeared and they finally understood? Oh, now we get it. Now we understand what you've accomplished. And when God gives them the power of the Holy Spirit... They become totally different, fearless, confident, passionate, bold, courageous, and you are not going to stop them in their ministry. From that point on, we've said it so many times, how can there be a change in just a couple days? The change was not just the Holy Spirit. We talk about that in Acts 2. I believe the change was they saw the resurrected Christ, and they said, oh, now, okay, okay. We were fearful before you got crucified. We didn't know what to do. Oh, we were so depressed. We just hung out the upper room. We were crying. The women were distraught. And, And then the word came back, he's alive. And we're like, we're not sure if that's true. And then you appeared, and we got it. We got it. We see the nail prints. We know you're alive. You're sitting here on the beach with us, eating fish. We get it. You are alive, and that means you're Lord, and that changes us. The other principle about Peter comes out of what Jesus emphasizes in his questions. The other thought, look at the verses, is that our love for the Lord is what will stir us to stand for him and serve him. Listen, what are the methods that God doesn't use? God does not use guilt to motivate. Let me say that again, because even in the car I was wrestling with that sentence. God does not use guilt to motivate us. How do I know that? Because guilt causes us to think about ourselves. And when we're caught in guilt, either we get so discouraged by our failure that we don't change, or we say, it's no big deal. So God's not going to use guilt as a primary method of trying to motivate us. He's not going to simply demand our obedience. Come on now, you're going to do it. This is what will be effective. I'm going to tell you what to do. How well did that work for the Israelites? Remember the Israelites? God gives them the law. He doesn't do it harshly. He gives them the law, says, love me. Have no other gods before me. Don't build graven images to me. I'm your God. I'm going to lead you. I'm taking you to the promised land. Remember Egypt. Remember the Red Sea. I'm going to do it. And Israel says, we don't want to do it but you have the law. Well, we don't care. Moses, throw down that tablet. We we don't care. We build a golden calf. That's what brought us out of Egypt. Look at it. So God's not going to be a harsh God who just says, do it because I want you to do it. We're too rebellious to do that. Nagging's beneath him. Begging would diminish him, and neither is going to convince us. The only way that we can fulfill his calling to minister to each other and take the gospel to the world is because of our love for him. If you don't love the Lord this morning, then you're not going to do what he says. If you don't love the Lord this morning, you're not going to tell people about him. If you don't love the Lord, you're not going to trust him. But when you do love him, you say, I want nothing else. I don't think Jesus doubted Peter's love. I don't think he's saying, Do you really love me in the sense that I'm unsure? He knows everything, and Peter even says that. But Peter had not proven his love in Caiaphas' courtyard. So now he's saying to Peter, Peter, I know you love me, but is your love going to be demonstrated by finishing the calling? Are are you going to love me the way I'm calling you to love me? And, And that leads me back to the question that was so much easier to answer last week when we were all excited about the empty tomb. But let's come a week later, it's now April 7th, and let's ask the question, do you really love the Lord Jesus? Not just because he saved us, but because of who he is. Because he stripped sin's power and freed us to walk in righteousness. Because his grace is sufficient. His grace is made perfect in our weakness. He's called us to trust him. Now it's starting to get hard. With everything we have. He's called us to voluntarily deny ourselves daily and bear his cross. Even if it has a personal and social cost. Do we still love him? Do we still love him knowing that it's counterculture and counterintuitive and it requires faith and not sight? Do, Do we still love him? Because that's what Jesus is asking Peter. At the core of his denials, he's saying, do you really love me? You said you did, but I didn't see it affirmed. And when that rooster crowed and I looked at you, the Bible says he looked at Peter, when I looked at you and saw your guilt and your sorrow, did you really love me then or did you deny me? What's it going to be, Peter? Because I have a plan for you. Are you going to trust my protection? Are you going to stand for me? Am I going to be first and foremost, even when you can't see what's coming next? Are you going to be blinded by self? Or are you going to love me? That's the question for us as believers this morning. I can't think of a more pertinent question for us. Do we love him? Now, something happened. let me finish. Something happened in the days after the denials that changed Peter's heart. And it caused his love and appreciation for the Lord to be permanently changed. I believe there are three things. Let me give you these and we'll pray. First of all, what what will cause our love to explode? What caused Peter to go from denial to I will never be silenced? You can kill me, but you won't shut me. In Acts 4, in the span of 50 days, how does Peter go from I've never seen him before to I will never stop talking about him again? How does that happen? I think three things. First, when he saw his Savior suffer for his sins, any measure of selfishness and any demand for his rights and his ways was eliminated. When we really understand the cross, we deny self. That's why Jesus, when he said, deny yourself daily, what's the next sentence? Take up your, tell me, cross. Why does he point us back to the cross? Because the cross is where we understand Exactly what Jesus did. I was thinking about the old hymn last night. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did the Sovereign die? Would he devote his sacred head for sinners such as I? And then you get to the chorus. You know it? How many know what I'm going for here? One of you. That's wonderful. So we're not going to sing it, you and me, Larry, okay? I thought we'll sing it, but nobody knows it. Listen to the words. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my sin rolled away. Oh, good words here. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. Peter saw the light at the cross. All his pride, all his self-sufficiency was there on Jesus' shoulders. And he looked at it and said, no more. No more. I denied my Lord, and now he's up there for me. How can I claim to love him unless I'm broken of what put him there? And that's me. Church, how can we claim to love the Lord this morning unless we are willing to say, God, break me of what put you on the cross? Take it away. You already have. Now take away the inclination. Take away the weakness. Take away the tendency. Take away the dependence on sin and on self. I have to be broken. And you say, when I'm broken, you'll come near. Second, when Peter knew the reality of Jesus' total victory over sin and death, it gave him confidence and boldness and commitment. No longer is he the guy that's making brash predictions. Oh, I'll follow you anywhere. I'll die for you. I think he meant it, but he didn't understand what he was saying. Now the Spirit gives him a strong resolve that whatever will come, he will faithfully serve the Lord. Now the enemy loves to attack that, which is why right here after the third question, look at what Jesus says. Peter, you love me? I'm convinced. You're going to serve me? I'm convinced. But I'm going to tell you up front. One day you're going to be martyred for your faith. They're going to grab you, and they're going to put you where you don't want to go. They're going to bind your hands, and they're going to kill you for me. You still in? You still with me? Notice his words to Peter after he says that. This is the price of your faithfulness, but follow me anyway. Now, the Peter of the courtyard would have backed down. He did back down, but Peter now will never back down. And from this point on, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he becomes audacious and unflinching to the opposition because he knows God loves me and I love him And I'm not gonna back down. When he saw Jesus alive, he said, That changes everything. And last, Peter knew he was imperfect, but he also knew that the Lord uses what's imperfect to show the power of his redemption. God uses what is imperfect in ways that we can't fathom to glorify him. By nature, God can't allow what's imperfect. In his presence. But because of Christ, he purifies us and transforms us and changes us. And then he says, here, Rhodes, you're the trophy of my grace. You're imperfect. You couldn't be more imperfect. I can't find anybody who's more imperfect than you. And normally, you wouldn't be allowed anywhere near me. But you know what? That's why I sent Jesus. Jesus. Because he took your imperfection and he crucified it and I've changed you and now I want you near me because while you're imperfect for now, you're perfect in my sight. And because I love you and because I've changed you, I'm now giving you a profound calling. Go proclaim me and go serve me. And I never and you never have to fear that his provision will be sufficient or that he will work mighty things through us if we are faithful, all we have to do is be willing. All we have to do is be willing. That's what I love about Peter. He's so willing. Even in his denial, he's so willing. You and I need that willingness. You and I need that courage, the passion to love the Lord and to faithfully fulfill his assignments. I came across a quote the other day. I have no idea how I found this, but as soon as I read it, I said, well, the Lord gave me that. Theodore Roosevelt wrote this, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. Listen now, the credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly who errs and comes up short again and again, because there's no effort without error or shortcoming. But who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself for a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly. So that this place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who knew neither victory nor defeat. And Roosevelt wasn't writing about Christians. He was writing about strong, courageous people. But I looked at that and I said, that's Peter. He stumbled publicly, but he was always in the arena. Always standing there, always defending the Lord, always being faithful against the opposition, giving all that he had to prove his love for the Lord. And I don't know about you this morning, but I want to be like that. Because at the end of the day, I want the Lord to say, you're not perfect, but you clearly love me. You're not perfect, Rhodes. You're not perfect, church. But there's no question that you love me. And because I can use what's imperfect, and because you love me, I'm going to do amazing things. Well done. Well done. Now go serve. Church, the Lord's giving us a fresh opportunity. Do we love him? And are we ready to serve him? Let's close our eyes. And let me just let that question sit with you for just a moment. Don't be distracted now. Don't get ready to go. Do you love him? Has your love waned? Are you like the church in Ephesus in Acts 2 that had left its first love? Is your heart stirred? You say, I can't wait. I can't wait now to see what the Lord's going to do. I can't wait to serve him. Are you kind of like, I don't know, Paul, I, I get it, but I just don't feel it. It's not about feelings at this point. It's about whether we love the Lord or not. Between you and the Lord this morning, do you love him? Do you need the Lord to restore to you the joy of your salvation? The passion for him. Listen, if that's waning this morning, look at the cross He took all your sin to deliver you. Look at the tomb. He defeated sin and death to free you. And look at the assignment. God wants to do mighty things in and through you. You're His child, you're His ambassador, you're His servant, you're the trophy of His grace. How does he want to use you? Lord, I pray this morning that our hearts would be stirred by the word that you've given to us. Father, we praise you and exalt you for your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness, which we can't even begin to understand the greatness of it. But Lord, as we celebrated last weekend, you have delivered us once and for all And your question for us is, do you love me? Father, may we love you more and more every single day. May our hearts be so just broken with deep gratitude for what you have done and how you have transformed us. And Lord, then you have given us the assignment to love each other. That has so many implications, Father taking the gospel, ministering to each other, praying for each other, encouraging one another, building each other up. Lord, the assignments are vast, but it all starts with whether we love you. So, Lord, I pray this morning for those that are struggling with that, whose whose love has waned. Maybe it never existed in the first place. Lord, that you'd awaken hearts this morning, that you would draw us closer to you, and, Father, that our love for you would deepen every single day because, Lord, you have work for us to do and we want to serve you well. We thank you and praise you that your love came first and it was so abundant that it changed us for all eternity. We thank you and praise you. We ask you now to use us in a mighty way, not so we'll get credit, but so you'll get glory and other people will know your love and will receive it and live by it. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.